We're continuing our time in this gospel as Matthew tells us of the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, and we are surprisingly moving towards the end. I don't think we're going to make it before the students leave us for the summer, so sorry. Um, but, uh, but this has, I think, been a valuable time for us to live in this story as Matthew uh, tells it to us. And we're going to look at chapter 18 tonight. And I know it's an extended passage and a little bit longer, but I, I want to read the whole chapter and, and take in the whole chapter uh, as we think about what Jesus has to say to us uh, through His Holy Spirit. And so Matthew chapter 18, I'll just read the whole chapter. Hear now the Word of God. At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... And that word there, sin, should probably be stumble, okay? And we'll talk about that. Whoever believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, and again, stumble. But it is, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often 
Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him. And he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then their master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered, delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Father, those are hard words. So much of what we have just heard teaching that has come to us from the mouth of your Son uh, through your Apostle Matthew by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So much of what we have heard tonight is difficult and challenging and confusing. And so we come and we beg for your help. We ask for clarity. Um, and more than that, we ask that you would give us humility to receive this hard message, to be changed by it, that we would become forgiving people. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a friend who makes fun of me. Um, actually, most of my friends make fun of me. But uh, this friend makes fun of me for a, a tick that I have. And uh, this guy is, is also in full-time vocational ministry. And uh, we'll talk about uh, different things going on in ministries and churches and things like that. And we'll talk about difficult situations. And inevitably in the conversation, at some point, I will lean back, throw up my hands and say, it's a mess. And I have learned that tick from experience. I grew up in a pastor's home. The trajectory of my life has had me on the inside of congregations and churches for pretty much all of my life. The church is a mess. And I have the stories and scars to prove it. 
And whether it's the church in America, the church in Africa, whether it's small churches or big churches, you don't have to be around them very long to find out that the community of God's people is a mess. And my guess is that many of you in this room tonight have stories and scars of your own. And that seems so opposite of what we saw in Matthew chapter 16 a couple of weeks ago. You remember Peter had this bold, incredible confession about Jesus, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the hope of the world the one who has come from God to make everything right. And Jesus says to Peter, that's good, that's great, and because of that, you're going to become the foundation, the beginning of my church. This group of people against which the gates of hell will not win. And we talked about the image of the keys that Jesus tells that he gives to, to Peter and his disciples, that he gives to us, that, that we as the church are a stewarding community. Like a steward in the ancient world would have access to the treasure room of a king or a wealthy person. That is our role in the world as the church, to open the riches of heaven into an impoverished creation. So, Exalted identity that Jesus gives us, but difficult reality of experience in the mess that Jesus' people can often be, the conflicts that create anger and bitterness within the people of God. What do we do with those two realities? Well, I think that that opposition is the reason that we have Matthew chapter 18. That Jesus understands what will go down after he leaves this earth and gives his Holy Spirit to the church. He understands what will happen in these communities. And so he gives us this teaching to help us live in the mess to help us know how we can have life together as his people. So I want us to come, center point, admitting fully that we're a mess. I want us to turn to the voice of our king, and to this teaching that he gives us in this chapter. And we'll see three elements to Jesus' teaching. Three elements, you, God, and us. Okay? A view of ourselves, a view of God, both of which produce a vision for community in God's church. So first of all, you. The question in verse 1 that the disciples ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That question is the source of most of the trouble that we deal with in the church community. It is the source of the majority of the mess that the church makes of relationships. Because this community gives us an opportunity for status. It gives us a place where we can be valued. 
It gives us a place where we can find importance and significance. And so we come into this community just as Jesus' disciples did, and we ask, where is the ladder, and how do I climb it? How can this group of people give me the status, the significance, the value that I'm looking for? And when we put that question to Jesus, he responds by redefining our identity. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Become like a child, he says to us. Now, we hear that, and we say, oh, that's cute. And we follow Jesus, we get to be like kids. We get to run through sun-dappled fields of wildflowers and spin and play, right? No, that is to hear Jesus' words through the lens of our culture rather than through the lens of this culture. Because in the culture of Jesus' disciples, children had zero status. They were essentially slaves. So legally, you could do with your kids whatever you wanted. If you wanted to beat them, that was fine. If you wanted to make them uh, function as free labor, that's okay too. So to be a child in this culture was to be in an incredibly vulnerable position. It was to have your well-being utterly dependent on your guardians. You had no status, no control over what your life would look at would look like. That was completely the job of someone else. So when Jesus calls us to humility, he is calling us to danger. He is calling us to, to risk, to live a life vulnerable to harm. What kind of harm? What, what kind of danger? Well, the word sin, at least in my translation, is, is repeated all throughout verses 5 to 9. And as I said when I was reading the passage, I think this word should be translated stumble. Because what Jesus is talking about here is not individual wrong acts. What he is talking about are patterns of life that would take us off the path of discipleship. Patterns of life that would take us away from Jesus and what he wants for us. Patterns uh, that would cause us to value something else someone else more than him, that we would think that someone or something is more worthy of our allegiance and our affection other than Jesus. And that is the danger that we live with as followers of Jesus. We live vulnerable to stumbling, to falling off of this road that he has put us on. We live vulnerable to losing our way and walking towards death and judgment rather than life and blessing. 
And this is the reason for the harshness of what Jesus says in verses 7 to 9. And this is a repetition of what we heard from chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus explaining the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of our fight against sin. The reason for it is because sin develops in us patterns, values, desires that lead us away from Jesus and His kingdom. So, to follow Jesus is to know that we have a wandering heart. Like we sang earlier, Income Thou Found. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You will not follow Jesus unless you are willing to own that about yourself. Unless you are willing to know your weakness, unless you are willing to become, not once, but over and over again, a little one. Vulnerable. If you have been around babies and toddlers, you know that there is a stage between baby and toddler. And my wife Jessica calls it the flapper stage, uh, because there, there's this time when uh, the, this child is, has learned to pull up, has learned to stand, and maybe has taken a step or two. But what they do is they pull up and they stand and they lean forward and then they start flapping, right? <laughs> That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It is to live in the flapper stage. It is to live between that movement that we have joined towards God's kingdom but to still know the pull internally and externally away from that, to feel the pull away from Him and the life that we can have in Him, and to be unsteady. That is what it means to become like a child, to become aware of our weakness. And the conflicts that rip churches apart, the conflicts that will threaten our life together in this congregation, come from an unwillingness to admit that. They come from an unwillingness to own our weakness and our vulnerability before Jesus. And they come from a desire, rather, to project strength, to demand our rights as an individual, to prove that we are the greatest. That we have a status superior to those around us, those poor, struggling sinners who sit beside us on Sunday. Now, why, why would we ever move towards this call that Jesus gives to us? Why would we embrace weakness? Why would we embrace the vulnerability of a child? Well, we do that because Jesus not only has something to say about you, but he has something to say about God. We're willing to do that because he, of what he says about his father. 
Jesus redefines us as children in response to our desire to be the greatest. He redefines us as children, and then he puts us in relationship to God as a father. But remember the context. A child has no control over their protection and well-being. All of it rests on the guardian, so that everything depends on the question... What kind of father is Jesus talking about when he puts us in a relationship to God as our father? What kind of father is he? And Jesus uses his two images to explain that, two pictures, stories, uh, to show us what kind of father God is. The first one is God as a shepherd in verses 10 to 14, and then God as this uh, generous king in verses 21 and following. And so the image of shepherd that Jesus gives to us is actually an economic image. So shepherd has a hundred sheep. He is not a wealthy man. So, and to lose one sheep is to lose major money. So every single sheep had an enormous amount of volume. So the shepherd going after the sheep wasn't that he had some sort of emotional attachment to his pet. It is that is major value that he is losing. And so he pursues this one sheep. And Jesus says that's what kind of father God is. The kind of father who values each individual in his flock the way that this shepherd values this one sheep. That if you are in Jesus, God looks at you, even in your wandering heart, and He commits to pursuing you, to running after you, as you wander, and bringing you back into His fold. And how does he do that? He does it with forgiveness. The second image that Jesus gives us, this king uh, that forgives the, the servant. And, and understand that when this servant is forgiven this debt, the, how it is described, the 10,000 talents, this is a ridiculous amount of money. This, is, this story is fantasy. Okay, This is... This is like saying uh, it's a gazillion amount of dollars. This is a massive amount. And also notice that for the king to forgive, it is not just to say, you know, it's all right. It's okay. Don't worry about it. It is to absorb the cost. With, With an amount that large, the king to forgive had to take on incredible cost, incredible damage to his own bank account. Every wrong action uh, demands a response, right? That's a basic pattern of justice uh, in pretty much every culture around the world. So... um, most people around the world, except the most extreme ideologies, would look at what happened in Boston uh, this week, and they would say justice demands that something happens in response to that. 
the, Bib- the Bible describes that response as a debt. That our wrong actions, our sin, demand a response. And it is a debt. And it is an enormous debt. It is a ridiculously large debt that we have before God. And God, as this king, chooses in his son Jesus to absorb the cost of our sin. He chooses to absorb the pain, the damage, the debt that our sin has created in His Son on the cross. So for Him to forgive us, for Him to be a Father who pursues by forgiveness, is not for Him to just say, alright, you're off the hook, no big deal. It is for Him to take incredible pain and cost and pour it on His own Son on our behalf. And that is how He pursues us. That is how He returns us to His fold. That is why we can live as vulnerable children. Because He is a Father who goes after us, who is committed to pursuing us, who grabs us as we are this child flapping, His forgiveness grabs us, steadies us, and returns us to His fold. That is why we can become children. That is why we can embrace the vulnerability that Jesus has called us to. We can embrace weakness because of the strength of God's forgiveness. Jesus describes the King and God as merciful. And this is a basic confession of the Bible about God's character, that He is a God of mercy. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament. It's repeated over and over. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for mercy is the same word for womb. So that for God to be merciful is not for Him to just say, hey, no big deal, don't worry about it. It is for Him to go after us and to take us into His womb, into the life and protection of His family, so that we are called His children. And yes, that is to be put in a vulnerable position, but we can do that because of His character as a father, a shepherd, a gracious and generous king. And that truth is personal. But that truth is not private. So that it is both personal truth, God's mercy and His forgiveness for us as individuals, but it is also a communal truth. In that God's mercy and forgiveness, as Jesus teaches it to us, 
teaches it to us, should create a certain type of community. And in fact, that is why Jesus is talking about vulnerability and mercy. Because He wants to create a certain type of relationship. He wants to produce a vision for His church, for His people, for the way that we relate to each other. So the basic progression is this. You are a little one in relationship to Jesus. You are a little one, and God is committed to pursuing and protecting His little ones. But if you are a little one, then the person sitting next to you is also a little one. And so God is committed to pursuing and protecting them. And here is the key throughout this chapter of what Jesus is saying You are a part of God pursuing that person next to you, and they are a part of God pursuing you. In each other's lives, in the church together, we join God in pursuing each other in mercy and forgiveness. So so the point of this story about the king and the ungrateful servant is, if God has absorbed the almost immeasurable cost of your sin so that you can belong to his family, then we, in relationship to each other, must absorb the cost so that we can belong to one another. So that we can be an expression in our relationship of God's family, of His kindness, of His mercy, of His forgiveness. And this connection between us being forgiven and then showing that forgiveness to each other is deadly serious. Verse 35, right? It's a hard verse. Jesus says, God doesn't show you forgiveness if you have not shown your brother forgiveness from your heart. So hard words, aren't they? Now, understand, the idea here is, is evidential. Okay? So Jesus is saying, in your life, show the evidence that you have been forgiven. This is not earning. Jesus is not saying forgive so that you will be forgiven. He is saying forgive because you have been forgiven. And even to give that explanation, in some ways, I know this is a difficult verse, but I don't want to soften it too much for us because I want you to feel the importance of what Jesus is saying to us. I want you to feel the importance of us forgiving each other, of us demonstrating God's mercy to each other. So Jesus envisions a community that will display God's mercy, that will display God's persistent forgiveness, His pursuit of His people. We are to be a community in our relationships to each other that demonstrate the gospel story. Of God going after us to make us His own. 
And in verses 15 to 20, Jesus gives us a very practical way to do that. He gives us a very clear process for how we, be, we are to be a people of mercy. And in many ways, this is straightforward enough that I don't need to spend a lot of time explaining it to you. It is a really basic process. If you have a concern for someone, if you feel that rise of disappointment, of anger, of frustration with someone, you go to them, you go to the source, you go to the source, you don't come to your pastor unless he is the source, you don't go to your mom unless she is the source, you go to the source, you go to that person alone, and you deal with it. If they are willing to receive your confrontation, if it is given in humility, then absorb the cost. Absorb the cost. That means you don't bring it out later and hold it over them. That means that you uh, do not say, I forgive you, but continue to maintain emotional distance from that person. You absorb the cost. If they refuse, then you involve other people. Um, and in general, I'd say it's good to go. This is the point at which you want to bring in the leadership of the church. If there is a continuing conflict, bring in myself or, or one of the elders from, from our church. And then we have a clear process, not only here in Scripture, but, uh, but in some of our denominational and confessional documents of how to deal with someone who continues to refuse to repent, to own their sin, and to ask for forgiveness. And that Jesus does imagine the possibility of that person being removed from the community. But notice this. He says they are to become as Gentiles and tax collectors. What does Jesus teach us to do with Gentiles and tax collectors all throughout the Gospel of Matthew? Go after them with the Gospel. Right? So even at this extreme point of someone being removed from the community... You still are pursuing them with God's mercy and forgiveness. We are still going after them. So that some people call this process church discipline. I think it should be called church pursuit or something like that. The, the point is to pursue reconciled relationships. It is to demonstrate the deep, unending mercy and forgiveness of a father that he has given to us in Jesus Christ. And what is remarkable about this process, as tedious as it can be and difficult as it can be, Jesus repeats the language from Matthew 16 as a part of this process, the binding and the loosing language, so that we are a stewarding community. We are connecting the treasure house of heaven to earth in this process of dealing with conflict of forgiving each other. That is how we open the treasure of heaven into an impoverished world. By not confessing someone's sin to someone else. By not hiding from each other. By not continuing to hold on to the cost that you want to exact from someone who has wronged you, the cost of distance, of silence. When we move towards forgiveness, mercy, towards each other, we 
are opening the riches of heaven into this earth. And Jesus says in verses 19 and 20 that he, his transforming presence is with us in that. When we sit down and have those difficult, honest conversations in the name of Jesus, he is there. He is with us in that. I wrestled this week as events unfolded in the news about whether I should step away from Matthew 18 and go to another passage and and talk about dealing with tragedy and and evil as the world has experienced it uh, this week. And I decided not to because I began to realize Matthew 18 is our response to a world where these evil tragic things happen. Our response to that is to be a community of mercy where those who are displaced find belonging in the name of Jesus. Our response is to be a community of forgiveness. And that's why, yes, pray for Boston as a city, but would you also pray for Brian Loney and Christ the King and the churches that are there? Because they have this incredible opportunity to respond to this tragedy with what Jesus teaches here in Matthew 18, that they would be in the middle of chaos and ugliness, the beauty of God's mercy. I pray that not only for Boston, but for Baghdad where explosions like happened in Boston happen way more often. And 26 people died in another one this week. Pray that God would raise up groups of people who display His mercy and forgiveness. Would you also pray for Tallahassee? Center point. We must pursue demonstrating God's mercy to each other, not only because that is what Jesus calls us to, but also because that is what our city needs. That this place and our world needs to see the possibility of mercy. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? It is very easy to talk about forgiveness, about mercy. They are attractive concepts, but it is so much harder to live these out. I pray for our congregation. I pray that you would teach us to live as little ones who participate in you pursuing other little ones. Would you teach us to own our weakness, our brokenness, to relate to each other out of that? Would you teach us honesty and truth, but truth spoken in love? Would you teach us quickness to absorb the cost of being wronged so that we can demonstrate to our world your mercy. We cannot be this without the help and the power of your Holy Spirit. So would you give that to us? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.